Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning. It's great to be here today. We are smack dab in the middle of our teaching series called We Are One and what we're trying to accomplish together, I should say rather, what we're trying to allow God to accomplish is to build something among us that is so unbreakable, that transcends any sort of connection that we might find outside of this fellowship. Even family, biological family, friends, work, purpose, mission, whatever you may find a connection to outside of this place, we're hoping that we'll be people who allow the Lord to build something among us and in us that is unbreakable, and that's called Christian unity. There's a desire for unity all over the world. We see it in every walk of life, really, whether it's work or in uh, the nation in which you live or the church in which you attend. There's this longing for unity. It's summed up, as the psalmist said in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant is it for people when they are walking as one or united together. It's a good thing. And we learned the last few weeks about how there's a character that you and I have to possess, a kind of submission to the character that God wants us to have that provides an environment for there to be unity. But even if we share the same character, you and I have to still share a collection of certain beliefs. Beliefs. There's some core things we've got to believe. And that's emphasized here in Ephesians chapter 4 when Paul, starting in verse 4, narrows down and says, there is one body, one spirit. As you can see there, he says, there is one hope to which you have been called. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. There's a collection there of seven ones. Last week we started talking about one body, that there is one body of Jesus Christ, and today we're going to talk about one spirit. There is one spirit. I want to dig into this to a couple different angles, so hang with me. Let's start first of all with the importance of there being one spirit. You know, before you and I become Christians, before you come back to Jesus Christ, we all have something that animates our life, something that guides our life, something that drives our life, something that you and I are led by. In chapter 2, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, here's how Paul describes it. Our choir is loud today. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Moms, look at me. Don't, it's okay. It really is. We're a church that loves children. Amen. Sometimes they get noisy, that means they're here, and I'd rather them be here than anywhere else. We've got a lot of people who don't have kids, their kids are grown, that'll labor with you and be patient with you, it's okay. And uh, we do have space if you need um, some time to have a little talk with them too, that's okay. <laughs> the most prayer requests I've ever asked were when I was being drug out in the back of the church building, <laughs> pray for me. <laughs> I was one of those kids, so that's okay. All right, let's ask question number one, the importance of one spirit. I was saying, 
before you're a Christian, before you are following Jesus Christ, there's something that animates your life. Something that drives your life. Something that moves your life, that guides your life. You are led by something. And Paul says back in chapter 2, listen how he describes it. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is the pre-Christ condition. In which you once walked your life in the trespasses and sin, following the course of this world, being led by the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. He's giving a lofty description of Satan. And he says, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see what he's describing there? He's saying before you become a Christian, there's a spirit that leads the children of disobedience, the people that walk away from God. He's describing it as that which animates your life, that which guides your life, that which fills your life. He calls that a spirit of disobedience. And the reason Paul is nailing down in chapter 4, there is one spirit, because he's getting to this point. When you become a Christian, there is one thing that is your lifeblood. One thing that animates your life. One thing that guides you. One thing is your source of energy in life. One thing is your essence. And for all of us, as a collective body of Jesus Christ, there is one thing that binds us together. He says it is the Spirit of God in us. In Jesus Christ, there is only one source of life and one force of leadership. When you become a Christian, there's one thing that guides you, that shapes you, that leads you, that you submit to, that you live out of, and that you hope to grow the fruit of, the Spirit of God in you. And when you are outside of Jesus Christ, there can be all kinds of different spirits. That's why uh, John would say in 1 John chapter 5 that you need to test the spirits. That you've got to see what it is that's guiding you and leading you so that you can know that it is God in us through Jesus Christ. For there to be real unity amongst Christians, we cannot be bound together by our common address, our common color, our common wealth or lack thereof, our common education. For us to be bound together, we must be united in our common spirit the spirit of god now living in us that's why paul would say in chapter 5 of ephesians listen don't be drunk with wine but be filled all the way up with the spirit what he's trying to compare is when you're drunk with wine you are under the control of a substance and he's saying don't let your life be under the control of wine be under the control fully of god's spirit in us that is the importance of one spirit but we've got to get into today to understand what the impact of that spirit is. So when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, I get two questions all the time. So I thought I would just answer those two questions and let's see if they're your two questions. I'm guessing that your questions about the spirit revolve somewhere around what these two questions are. Question one is always, what does he do? Question two is, how do I know I have him? That those are the two main questions that I get when talking about the Holy Spirit and his impact on our life. So let's try to answer those together. First of all, what does the Holy Spirit do? And the simple answer is this. He does a lot. A lot of things that you don't see. A lot of things that happened before you ever existed. In fact, at the very beginning of time in Scripture, we see in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over that which He created. He was here at the very beginning. He is the presence of God throughout all history amongst His people. 
And he's doing all kinds of different things. He is the presence of God in the world. I want to turn to a couple passages. We're going to go first to John chapter 16. We've got to read a couple passages together to let Scripture speak to us about what the Spirit does. First of all, in John 16, we're going to see that the Spirit of God leads us to truth. To truth. So go to John 16, 7 through 14. I'm going to read this with you. John 16 is a period of time when Jesus is at the end of his life. It's the night that he was going to be betrayed. And he was going to then go upon a cross and die the very next day. And he's gathered around him as 11. Judas is now gone. And he's telling them that there's an important time coming. They know it's serious. And he says, you're going to have peace. You're going to have joy. There's great promises. But you're also going to have tribulation and difficulty. And woven through John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, this period of time when Jesus is teaching them, is this one constant. I'm going to send my spirit. The spirit's going to come. Now look down in chapter 16, verse 7. You get a specific taste of what he's saying. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth, into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will, listen carefully, here's what the Spirit will do. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let me show you a couple things that the Spirit does. The Spirit is the author, the teller of truth. If you go back and look in verse 9, he says, here's what the Spirit's going to tell us. Three things. He's going to tell us truth about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. But you've got to be a careful reader to see what he's saying. If you look in verse 9, he says he's going to convict the world of sin. Verse 9 says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They don't believe in me. So he's going to bring the world under a conviction of sin singular. The big sin is this, that we don't believe in Jesus Christ. There's thousands of little sins, plural, S. Thousands of them. But the thing that the Spirit is bringing conviction upon that will bring out all those little sins is this one sin, that you don't believe in Jesus Christ. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. The Spirit is the one who convicts and tells us the truth about sin. He also, says in verse 10, tells us the truth about righteousness. Now what does he tell us? And verse 10 says this, He is going to convict us of righteousness, concerning righteousness, because... I go to the Father. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus knows that he's going to die, be put into a tomb, and three days later, he's going to raise back to life, and 40 days after that, he will ascend to go back to the Father. Now, what is Jesus doing right now at the right hand of the Father? Do you know? 
He's standing at the right hand of the Father, and the Bible says he's advocating for those who are his as the accepted sacrifice of God. So God sent him as the acceptable sacrifice for sins. He, was, he paid that price, went into the grave, came back to life. Now he's with the Father, and he's advocating as a defense attorney for those who are his. He's saying, he is mine, she is mine, her, I know she's here, but she's one of mine. Constantly right now, if you are in Jesus Christ, Jesus is advocating to the Father for you. So when he says, the Spirit convinces us concerning righteousness, what he's saying is constantly the Spirit is telling you the truth about where you get righteousness. If you think you get righteousness because of what you do, whether you're successful and self-righteous or unsuccessful and in despair, that's a lie. The Spirit of God tells us where we get righteousness. It is from the advocacy of Jesus Christ to the throne, saying he or she is one of mine. What I've done is enough for them. The Spirit tells us about that. Number Verse 11, the Spirit also tells us about judgment, but look specifically about this judgment. He says in verse 11, concerning the judgment... Because the ruler of this world is judged. What is the message over and over and over about the, from the Spirit about who is judged? You? Read it again. Who is judged? The ruler of this world. The message of the Spirit over and over and over and over is this. That guy that tries to enslave you to sin... That guy that lies to you, that guy that deceives you and manipulates you, guess what? He's already judged. The game is over. He is lost. He's done. You have won the victory. That's what the Spirit is constantly saying. Now, how does he tell us this? In verse 14, he says this, forgiveness. Pardon me. The Spirit tells the truth about sin and about righteousness and about the judgment of Satan, all by telling us the truth about Jesus Christ. He will glorify me. So, the best work the Holy Spirit ever does is to never be seen. You know, you're, you know the Spirit is doing His work when Jesus Christ is glorified. So if you walk into a church or a gathering of people and they are amplifying how Spirit-filled they are, and there's not much mention about Jesus, they're missing what the real Spirit is doing. Because the Spirit is the most humble Part of the part of God. He is so humble. He wants Jesus to be known. He wants Jesus to be declared. He wants Jesus to be glorified. So when Jesus is lifted up and Jesus is honored and Jesus is respected, the Spirit is doing his work. Now I tell you this because here's where Satan attacks us. Satan, as Paul said, walks around like an angel of light, deceiving people. And he shows up and he makes Christians think he's the Spirit by convicting you constantly of your sin, that you're not righteous enough, and that you will be judged. Now if you go back to this passage, that's not what it says. That's not what the Spirit does. So the Spirit leads us into truth about sin, righteousness, and the judgment of Satan by telling us about Jesus. The Spirit leads us in sanctification. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Let's read this passage together. Galatians 5, starting in verse 17, pardon me, verse 16, says this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Christian, have you ever experienced frustration in trying to obey God? You ever felt frustration over your sin? This is what he's describing. He says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. That's what it means to walk by the works of the flesh. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Okay, here's what the Spirit does. Here's how He leads us in sanctification. Two things. The Spirit of God leads you into war against your sin. You see, He says, this flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other. They don't like each other. They don't get along. Romans 8 would tell you this, this way, when He says, those who are led by the Spirit of God war against their sin. So if you find yourself warring against sin, the Spirit is doing the work in you. The Spirit also leads you into freedom of righteousness. There's a great misconception about what freedom really is. Most people right now in our culture think freedom is the freedom from responsibility or the freedom from obligation to do something. So I get free when I get all my tasks taken care of and then I'm liberated to really just indulge or do whatever I want. That's not real freedom. That's just another form of slavery. Freedom is the discipline that drives you to do the right things. Freedom is this, what he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. He's saying the natural outcropping of your life, when it's easy for you, natural for you to have love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. When those things emerge, that's real freedom. Okay, so the Spirit leads us in sanctification. Finally, the Spirit leads us to love. Go back to our passage in Ephesians and look at chapter 3. Paul prays for the Christians there in chapter 3 when he says this. He says, for this reason, in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So here's why Paul is praying, verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, why does he want you to be strengthened with power in your inner being? What does he want you to be able to do with all this power and all of this strength that he wants you to have? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you, see, do you get the essence of that prayer? Paul's hitting his knees and begging the Father, saying, God, would you give these Christians enough power and enough strength by your spirit in their inner man 
so they, they would understand that they're loved. You see, here's what he's trying to get at. It takes the strength of God for you to know you're loved by God because it is a love that is greater than anything you can comprehend. You can't capture this love. You can't encapsulate it. You can't understand it on terms of just what you and I figure out. He's saying, God, I pray that the believers that are in Ephesus right now would have the kind of strength it takes to let themselves be loved. You see, the hardest thing you'll ever do in your Christian life is not give love. We're actually not bad at that. Regardless of our reasons or motivations, sometimes they're selfish, sometimes they're not. You and I are probably relatively decent as when we see somebody in need helping them out or doing something kind, right? Christians can be pretty good at that. But one of the hardest things a Christian can ever do is to let themselves be loved by God. That's why he prays, God, would your spirit please strengthen these believers with the rest of the saints to open themselves up and let themselves be loved. That takes hard work. That's why Paul says we need to remind ourselves daily, encourage each other daily to stay in this faith. So the second question is this. I know that was a long one. What does the Spirit do? He does a lot of other things. There's some passages to tell you what he does. The second question is this. How do I know I have him? I've met so many Christians, myself included, that are kind of unsure about this. They don't understand it. It seems kind of beyond us, a little bit mystical, a little bit out of our realm, right? How do I know? Well, there's two ways you know. First of all, you know that you have him by the promise of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, when the very first Christians were baptized into Jesus Christ, Paul, uh, Peter presented the gospel. They said, okay, what do we do? We know we're guilty. What do we do? And Peter said to them, let everyone even repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Meaning, we know we're guilty. He says, when you're baptized into Jesus Christ, you are washed clean of those sins, but, the, but there's no period there. There's a comma. He says, when you're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, comma, so that, here's the grand conclusion, so that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's an objective reality that you have to accept about the Holy Spirit that it's the promise of God to those who are baptized into Jesus Christ, they have him. That's the promise. It's not always experiential. You go down into the water, you come back up. It's not like you get hit by a, a bolt of lightning and all of a sudden your toes are tingling. It is a promise of God that those who come to him by faith, confess their sins, repent and start to follow him and are baptized into Jesus Christ when they're raised he says, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness of Christ paved the way for the presence of God to be in your life. That's why Jesus said, it's best that I go so I can come and then live in you and dwell with you. But the second thing is this, and here's where I want to get really practical with you. You know you have the Spirit, not just by the promise of God, but by the practice of your life. Remember before I told you what the Spirit did when he led you into truth about sin, claiming who Jesus is? about righteousness, that you know there's things that are right and things that are wrong and Jesus is advocating for you, about judgment to come, that the ruler of this world is judged. You see, you have to ask yourself these questions. Have you seen this truth before? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you think he's the son of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again? Do you believe those things? You don't without the Holy Spirit. Okay? Do you believe what's true about righteousness? That when Jesus right now is at the right hand of God claiming you and me to be his? 
Do you believe what's true about judgment, that Satan will not win, that he's ultimately been condemned? Even in the midst of doubt, there's moments that you believe that. That's evidence. Let me ask you another question. Do you hate your sin? Does your sin bother you? Does your sin, like, frustrate you and you wish you could kind of rid yourself of all the sin that's left still in you? And do you want more righteousness? That's the Spirit leading in sanctification. Do you struggle to know you're loved? Do you find it hard sometimes to know you're loved? And do you want to, like, wrestle with that to make sure it goes from here to here and really get it? Do you struggle with that? The Spirit is trying to strengthen you. See, here's the point. If you are indifferent towards sin and could care less about the love of God and found the subject of sin to be whatever, that's not the Spirit. But if you find yourself fighting and wrestling and working towards these things, that is not evidence that you're failing. That's evidence that the presence of God is working in your life. And here's where Satan is masterful. You see, he attacks you um, coincidentally in all these places that God wants to strengthen you. Satan attacks you. He starts with your head. Things you think that you know, maybe you don't know, and you have moments of doubt, and he says, well, if you doubted, that must mean you're not a Christian. That's not true. And then he attacks your hands, what you do. And so when you sin or when you slip up, he says, hey, man, a real Christian, someone who has the, really the Spirit of God would never do that. And he attacks you, what you do. And then he attacks you at your heart, and he says, are you sure you're loved? Constantly, over and over. And the fact that you're fighting for these things is evidence that God has not abandoned you, that his spirit is with you. Ultimately, we know him, the spirit, we live by him, and we let him do this amazing, miraculous work through the great work that the spirit did. And that is the creation and the collection of his scripture. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 1, that it's the spirit of God who carried people along as they wrote scripture. He to, uh, Tim, uh, pardon me, Paul told Timothy that it's the Spirit of God that breathed out the Scriptures, that we have the Scriptures because they're the breath of God. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul is telling Christians to mount up a defense against Satan, like I was just describing, the way he attacks you. So how are you going to defend yourself? When Paul is telling us all the armor that we put on, he gets to the end and he says, you need to take up also the sword of the Spirit, meaning belonging to the Spirit, the sword that belongs to the Spirit. Well, what is that? Hebrews 4.12 says this, that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to divide between your thoughts and your intentions, meaning Scripture knows you better than you know you. So when you read God's Word, when you read this masterful work of the Spirit, when you read the words of Christ, when He said, my words, they are Spirit and their life, when you read those things, what you're doing is handing to the Spirit of God His sword so that He'll go to work, not just outside of you, but inside of you. But you've got to be ready. If you hand Him the sword, He's going to start swinging. And what He's going to start cutting out is the lies, the darkness, the sin, the indulgence, all the things that lead you away from God, he's going to start hacking. He's going to show you truth about yourself and about God. He's going to show you what righteousness is and lead you in sanctification. And he's going to ultimately open you up to the most vulnerable place you've ever been. And then you beg to the heavens and say, give me strength to know I'm loved by God. That's what the Spirit does. So you can't miss the impact or the importance of him, but you've got to hear the invitation. This is my favorite part. 
Revelation chapter 22, the last breath of the Bible, the very last breath of the Bible says this, the spirit and the bride cry out, come. Who's the bride? We know the spirit is, right? But who's the bride? The fellow believers in Jesus Christ. We're the bride of Christ. Those who have the spirit, you've got to be crying out to those who are missing or those who are misguided, come. The spirit's favorite word is the same favorite word of the father and the son it's just this just come you see you want explanations and understandings and sometimes we want all the parts to fit and all the pieces to come together and then we'll believe and here's what he's saying over and over and over try me test me come on and i'll prove to you i'm better than anything you've ever imagined i'll prove it but you got to come let's stand and sing with alan if you need to come let's do it